0: Let's get right to it, y'all. Uh, let's get right to it. So good to see everybody. So good to see you all. As you as you guys know, this is the Read and Rant. What we do here is we commit 20 to 30 minutes every morning in the reading of scripture. Uh, I believe that the discipline of simply just reading scripture is incredibly powerful and transformative and And so that's what we do. Every morning, we just come together and we just commit to that time. We just commit to um, hearing from God through his scriptures. And what we do when we hear from God through his scriptures, or at least to posture ourselves to hear from God through the reading of scripture, we ask three questions. Uh, God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? The second question is, God, what are you revealing concerning people? And the third question is, God, what are you revealing concerning me? God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? What are you revealing concerning people? What are you revealing concerning me? And I think when you're asking, I believe this, that when you ask those three questions as you're reading the scripture, you're opening yourself up not to simply understand what the word is saying, but to open up in in an even bigger, broader, greater light to hear from God and to receive what God has for you today. This word was written in antiquity, but yet it has contemporary relevance right it's written from way back but it is applicable to us today remember it's not simply about just the words that are in this text but it's about the spirit and the holy spirit washing us with the words and so um that's really what i want to encourage you guys to do and that's what we're going to do as we pray and we're going to dig into the word we're in first chronicles 16 we've been reading through from genesis we're reading from genesis all the way to the end of scripture and so anyway um I just want to address that one question is, yes, God forgives sin. He, he, Again, when we talk about the forgiveness of sins, we often think about it as simply rules that are broken in the Bible or acts of immorality. But it's more than that. God forgives sin. He forgives us of all our sins and he heals us of all our diseases. That's what scripture says. And so, yes, he forgives sin. He forgives all sin, all our sins and all our Diseases, So yeah, so let's go ahead. Let's get into the word. Father, I ask today, Lord, as we engage in your word, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, speak to us in your word. Father, encourage us in your word, build us up in your word. Um, I just pray right now, Lord, that we would have an encounter with you today or that you would uh, encourage us, that you would empower us, that you would speak to us. Speak to us. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get right into it, fam. Let's get right into the word. We're in First Chronicles 16, and I'm going to be reading from verse 1. And we're going to spend a few moments in the reading of the text. Verse 1, it says, So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle of da- that David had erected for it. Then they burnt offerings and peace offerings, sorry, then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, then Jael, then Shemarimoth, then Jael, then Bet- Betithiah, Eliab, Benaiah, and Obed-Edom. Jael was, Jael was string instruments and harps, but Asaph made music with cymbals, Benaiah, and Jehaziel, and the priests regularly blew the trumpets before the ark of the covenant of God. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. It says this, O give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek God. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders, and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, you chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abram and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance, when you were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when you went from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, give to the lord glory and strength give to the lord the glory due his name bring an offering and come before him o oh, worship the lord in the beauty of holiness tremble before him all the earth the world also firmly established it shall not be moved let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad and let them say among the nations the lord reigns let the sea roar in all its fullness let the field rejoice and all that is in it. Then the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And say, Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles, to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So he left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister before the ark regularly, as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom and his son Jedethon and Hosiah to be gatekeepers and Zadok the priest and his brethren, the priest before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gibeon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord and on the altar of burnt offering regularly morning and evening and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel and with them Haman and Jeduthun and the rest who were chosen, who were designed or sorry, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his mercy endures forever. And with Haman and Jedathan to sound aloud with trumpets and cymbals and the musical instruments of God, now the sons of Jedathan were gatekeepers. Then all the people departed, every man to his house, and David returned to bless his house. Verse 17, now it came to pass. When David was dwelling in his house, that David said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But it happened that the night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent, and from one tabernacle to another. Wherefore, I have moved about with all Israel. Have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from sheepfold, from following the sheep to be the ruler of my people of Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you and have made your name like the name of a great, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more. As previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, also, I will subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house and it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house. and, And I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God. And you have all spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for the honor of your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord, for your servant's sake. And according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness. In making known all these things, O Lord God, there is none like you. Nor is there any God beside you according to all that you have heard with your ears. And who is like you, sorry, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for yourself a name by great and awesome deeds, by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, let it be established forever and do as you have said. So let it be established that your name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you have blessed it, O Lord. It shall be blessed forever. Chapter 18 After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines, subdued them, and took Gath and its own towns from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab. And the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. And David defeated Hededezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, as he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hedadezer, king of Zobah. David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went, and David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hededezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also, from Tibath and from Chun, cities of Hededezer, David brought a large amount of bronze, with which Solomon made the bronze sea the pillars, and the articles of bronze. Now when Tu, King of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hededezar, King of Zobah, he sent Hadaram, his son, to King David, to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hedadezer and defeated him, for Hededezar had been at war with Tu. And Hadaram brought with him all kinds of articles, gold, silver, and bronze. King David also dedicated to the Lord, Among the silver and gold, all that he had brought from these nations, from Edom, from Moab, and from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, and from Amalek. Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, killed 8,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Shavshah was the scribe. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers at the king's side. Chapter 19 It happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died, and his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father, and David's servants came to Hanan in the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved them, and cut their garments to the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. Then some went and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, then return. <laughs> when the people of Ammon saw that he had made, that they had made themselves repulsive to David, Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syrian Makkah, from Zobah. So they hired for themselves thirty-two thousand chariots, and the king of Makkah and his people, who came and encamped before Medeba, Also, the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. Now, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. So Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind. He chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians and the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be of good cheer. Sorry, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city. So Joab went to Jerusalem. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river and Shofak the commander of Hededezer's army, went before them. When it was told, David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan and came upon them and set up a ba- in battle array against them. So when David had set up in battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians and killed Shofak, the commander of the army. And when the servants of Hededezer Saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. So the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore. Hmm. Chapter 20 It happened in the spring of the year, at the time the kings go out into battle, that Joab led out the armed forces. And ravaged the country of the people of Ammon, and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem, and Joab defeated Rabbah and overthrew it. Then David took the king's crown from his head, and found it in the weight of a talent of gold, and and there were precious stones on it, and it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance." And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, with iron picks, and with axes. So David did to all the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now it happened afterward that war broke out in Gezer with the Philistines, at which which time Sebekai the Hushathite, killed Sipai, who was one of the sons of the giant, and they were subdued. Again, there was war with the Philistines. And Elhana, the son of Jair, killed Lami, the son of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, and there were men of great stature with 24 fingers and toes, six on each hand, six on each foot, who were also born of the giant. So when he defiled Israel, sorry, when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These were born of the giant of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. We'll stop at 21. Now Satan stood against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Let me read that again. Now Satan stood up against Israel. And move David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be the cause of guilt in Israel. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of people in some of the number of people to David. All Israel had one million one hundred thousand men who drew the sword. And Judah had four hundred thousand and seventy, sorry, four hundred and seventy thousand men who drew the sword, but he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Hmm. And so David was displeased with this thing. Therefore he struck Israel. Sorry, so God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, "I have sinned greatly." Because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very, very foolishly. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it for you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine, or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword. Of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord, the plague of the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. As he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, It is enough now. Restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw an angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having his hand A drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and his elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord of the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Arnon, Grant me the place on, of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at full price, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Arnon said to David, Take it you, take it to yourself, Let my Lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for the burnt offering. And the threshing implements for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. Then King David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price. I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with which cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire. On the altar of burnt offering, then the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword to its sheath. At that time David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of burnt offering which which Moses gave in the wilderness were at the time of the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. The Word of God. I'm going to stop right here um, to reflect on uh, what uh, the Lord is inspiring me with today. I want to say this, um, I, you know, I've, it's always an interesting posture to have as one who, who preaches and who presents and who communicates the message of Jesus Christ and who spends time in the reading of the word, right? It, it, you know, It's it's always interesting to come here every morning and just come with, nothing prepared because, you know, you always have a tendency to have something prepared. And so I'm always postured in a way to say, "Okay, Lord, I got nothing today. I'm 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 just going to read this and then I'm just going to allow you to speak and allow you to simply communicate to me what it is that you have for me and maybe for those who are participating and attending with me. I have to preface this by saying That what we're doing here, what's most important is what we just did in the last 25 minutes, which is the actual reading of Scripture. And I think often people, uh, they downplay and diminish the powerful endeavor of reading the Word of God. Just reading it. Just committing to a time and just reading the Word. Because I think for many people, they're intimidated in the sense of, hey, I need to understand everything I've read. Um, And yet there's so much that can happen, that the Holy Spirit can do in your life to transform you simply in sitting down and reading the Word. As I came today, I'm reading, and there's, you know, the, the teacher in me wants to sit and say, okay, I, I need to explain this part, and explain this, I need to explain that, and need to explain this. But the Son in me, and when I say the Son, I'm talking about the one who, who sits in sonship, the one who, who sits affirmed by God, knowing that he's been adopted by God to be his son, to sit and just to say, God, what are you saying to me? Speak to my heart. Don't, don't, don't just feed my mind, but speak to my heart today and help me hear from you concerning your word. What a powerful thing that would be if we all just did that is to say, God, you know what? I I don't know if I fully get anything I'm reading here, but God, what are you saying to me? Like, what do you want me to know today? What what are you asking of me today as I read your word? And that's really the posture that I've taken. And I'm reading it, and I'm asking this question. I'm prayerfully going through that question, and the Lord is leaving is allowing me just to land on this maybe one or two thoughts. And I want to share those thoughts with you today. If you've been with us throughout uh, the last few months, this is we have been reading through the entire Old Testament, and what I and I've heard from many of you. And I'm so encouraged by it. But there are many of you who now say, hey, you know what? I'm seeing the scriptures in a whole new light. I'm seeing the Bible in a whole new light. Now I see the message of the gospel from a whole different perspective because I've actually, for the first time, just sat down and read through it for myself to hear that that this is it. Like I've heard, I've read this for myself now to know okay, this is what this is really about. And this is what this is really saying. And so we've been journeying through it and we get to this place where, as I mentioned to you uh, the day before yesterday, since we went on yesterday, but I mentioned this to you, that Chronicles is one of those books that almost seems like it's out of place because Chronicles is written um, at a time say about uh, maybe almost a century after Israel had come back from exile, when we end the book of Kings, the chosen people of God, right, have now been uh, transitioned and brought into exile, into captivity in Babylon. And so we see the beginning of exile. The consequence of exile for the children of Israel is that they were not able to administrate. They were not able to handle the freedom, the grace, the law that was given to them, the calling of them being chosen people to execute the righteousness and the justice of God. Instead of being distinct people, holy and set apart, fundamentally different what we see through the whole the old testament narrative is that these people they keep falling into being like everybody else the great sin really of the children of israel in the old testament was compromise that was the great sin we could talk about all the stuff that they did but it all began with compromise and because they compromised their calling To be people who are distinct. Remember, that was established at Mount Sinai. To be a people who are holy and separate. To be a nation of priests who will reveal to the world what God is like. That God has chosen in him. Set aside, set apart, and put his name on them. That these people have failed in doing so. They go into the land that was promised to them. This is land they were already there before, but they go into the land that was promised to them. And and we see compromise after compromise, after compromise, after compromise, which really speaks into the tendency that we have to let the humanity in us, right? To, to let, to let the sinfulness in us take front stage in our life. It speaks into the tendency that we have to be what we see around us rather than to be distinct and to be separate and to live a life with peculiarity, because a peculiar life side note real quick because a peculiar life is a life that invites curiosity that invites the curiosity of those who do not know God um I've always said this that 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 the greatest apologetic is a peculiar life. you can give me Bible all day, you can give me strict scripture all day. Give me good. You can give me theology. You can even give good theology. You can give good teaching. You can give all of that. But if your life is a life of compromise, if your life is a life that doesn't compel anyone to be interested in what it is that you believe, then what power does your doctrine have? Like, what what power does your doctrinal position have? What power does the message of Jesus have if it's simply a message that coincides with the people who don't live lives that are distinct? People have to see that by the way that you live, there's something different about you, right? And this is not, remember, this is not not a legalistic thing. This is not saying you got to follow all these rules, follow all these things, and to do X, Y, and Z. That's actually not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that if you have a life that's distinct, like it's just different. People see the way that you see things differently. They see that you live a life that's peculiar. They, they see that you live a life where what worries you is not what worries them. And what worries them isn't what worries you. And they see that there are things that you fight for, that you you seek after that that's different. And they see that, the things that govern you and that rule over you, the things that, that that dictate and guide your life is different. If it if they don't see that, what point does your good doctrine have? What what point does your your good theology have? What point is it for you to have a word? What point is it for you to show up on Sunday? To church. What point is it? Like, why does any of that matter? I don't care how much you how how good your attendance is in church. I don't care how good your your tithe is in church. You can be a good tithing member. You can be all of that. And yet, your life, if it isn't distinct, if there isn't a distinction between you and those who are around you, real ministry isn't happening in the building. Real ministry is happening in the boardroom. Real ministry is When I say real ministry, I'm talking about ministry actually begins outside of what's happening inside a church. It's a church building that's been the problem for a lot of people because they think that's when they go to church, that's when they do ministry. When the reality is that you've been called in your gifting, and this is going to lead me to where I want to go with you today. It's going to lead me to where I want to land. But you've been called in the work that you do, in your gifting to sacrifice all of yourself so that those who are around you can see there's something different here. There's something there's something different about this person. There's something there's something distinct about this person. And that's the consequence of Israel is that Israel fell into captivity because Israel compromised who they were. They compromised their calling. And so when Second King so when Second Kings ends, and we go from 2nd Kings to 1st Chronicles, what's in between those two books. Is most of the scriptures that we read from here on out, it's kind of it's kind of out of place. First Chronicles or the Book of Chronicles, because first and second Chronicles is actually one book that's been split into two. The Book of Chronicles should have been placed kind of at the end if it was chronological, right? To kind of place it at the end—that's where you should put it, right? But because it's not about the chronology, but about something deeper, is. What placing Chronicles does at this point in the book, as we're reading it, is Chronicles is giving us a prelude. It's a message of hope for us to know this is what transpired. Chronicles is giving light to all that we've read up to this point and telling us that it's all gonna be okay at the end. And I said this, I think we uh I said this, I can try to remember what I said on Tuesday. But it's it's a book that says, look at what God has done. And look at what he is still doing. Look at what God has done. And yet he is doing more. This is the message. This is the great hope of the gospel is that God is still at work. God is still moving. I want to leave you with this thought today. Because... These people now who have been brought back to the land, brought back from captivity, are given this letter and given this book. And we read now, what did we read? We started with with David, right, celebrating and worshiping. Let me just walk you through this because I want you to see what we've read today and see where, where the Lord is leading me to. We see David, right, going back now. We already read the story of David, but I love that Chronicles is giving us more to the story. Giving us other things, giving us another angle, another vantage point. They're helping us see another side of David. Chronicles tells us about David the worshiper, and David is worshiping and and glorifying God, and and, and we see David who's dancing, not even like how a royal or a king should dance, and, we, and he frustrates his wife Michal, if you guys remember from uh, the, the, the 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 last verse that we read yet uh, in our last reading, and now we're in. First Chronicles 16, and and David writes this beautiful song of thanksgiving to God, uh, and, and we see that the the um the Ark of the Covenant being ushered back into to Jerusalem, and and they're celebrating and they're worshiping and they're dancing and there's music and there's celebration, and then at the end of First Chronicles 16, we see now the regular ordinance of worship, we see worship becoming a regular thing, praise becoming a regular thing, it's almost like this is a new thing that was that's being introduced. Into the life of the people, that now it's not simply just following of the law, but there needs to be a worshiping of God, a, a reverence to Him, a, a, an act of continual thanksgiving that He's instituting over and over again. And then God, then then in 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 First Chronicles chapter seventeen, this is reminiscent of oh goodness, this is reminiscent of. Remember, we're we're, we're queuing things that have already happened. Chronicles is just a review. Of Scripture, uh, in Second Samuel chapter seven, we see David has this encounter with God, where where God is making a covenant with David. Now, First Chronicles seventeen is bringing us back to what we've read in Second Samuel chapter seven, and in Second Samuel chapter seven. Right, we 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 see David, who's compelled to build this house for God. He looks and he says, "I've got a house, and and, and this house is made of cedar, and, and 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 I have a house that's built that I'm able to live in." But but what about you, God? You you don't have a house that you can live in, and and we've been resting your ark, and we, we've brought your ark in, but we're resting it under tents. We got to build a temple for you. We have to build a house for you. And, and so if you look at verse six in chapter 17 it says, wherever I have moved about all Israel, God responds to him and says, wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd me saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I have to pause here for a moment. I have to pause here for a moment because if you notice, David feels compelled to build a house for the Lord. In verse 4. And in verse 4, God re- resp- replies to him and says to him, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. Then he says, Have you not seen from judges, from Joshua to judges, from 1 Samuel, all the way up to this point? Have you not seen that I've had a house? And have you heard from me that I've complained about it? Did you, did, you, did you hear what did you did you did you see that? He said, have you heard me even ask why have you not built me a house? The temple and the tabernacle is not my priority. It's at the bottom of the list of things that are important to me. Did you hear from me that I haven't that you haven't built me a tabernacle? Did y'all hear me on that? Like, did you hear from me that, that I needed a temple from you? David, it almost seems as if the temple is more David's problem than it is God's problem. David is making this an issue when God is saying, I have never made this an issue. He says in verse 10, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, he says, also I will subdue my enemies. Furthermore, I tell you, that the Lord will build you a house. Again, reminding us of what we've read up to this point. We've been reading this, and this is just a reminder. And so now, of course, the Lord is redirecting David. That it's not the house that's the priority, but it's the people. It's not the temple that's the priority to me but it's my people. What's the point of having a temple when my people are far from me? What's the point of having in the years of the, in the days of the judges? What did we see in the days of the judges? He said, so there was no king of, in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is what concerned God. Not where's the tabernacle? Where's the great house of worship? Where God was less concerned about that. He was more concerned about his people. He wanted to establish a nation. He wanted to establish his people. Verse 16, then when King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? David has gratitude because now there's a promise that has been made that the house will be built, but it won't be built in this way that there will be a temple that will be built and it'll be built by the one after you and I will establish his kingdom. But before then I will build you a house. I will build you a house. I want to build up my people, not have my people build up buildings. And it shall be that when your days are fulfilled, verse 11, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seat after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. This idea and this concept of the house of God will not be reduced to just a little building and a little temple. There's no temple that's large enough, great enough to cover and to encompass and to house the glory of God. And I love that that promise is made because now it's pointing to where, what God intends for his people Yes, we read in verse 18, David has these successes and these conquests, and and David establishes his administration in, in chapter 18. Then in chapter 19, we see the story of the Ammonites. There's so many stories in here, and I'm going to get to my point. We see stories of the Ammonites and the Syrians being defeated. We see um, that David goes out and, 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 and even... You know, David sees these men and he he, he doesn't really respect, respect them very much because they've been shaven. And, and David's like, man, listen, when your beards grow back, then you shall return. But they stood out and they stood for justice and righteousness. And in the end, they conquered Rabbah. And, and David comes back and David takes the spoils of Rabbah and celebrates. Interestingly enough, notice that the first verse in chapter 20 is, it happened in the spring of the year at the time the kings go out to battle that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon. That language sounds familiar. was it that the time in the spring of the year, at the time the kings go out to battle, that David had the encounter with Bathsheba? But that's another conversation for another day, because that's not the whole point of what I want to talk about and share with you in the last few moments. But we see these people conquered, and uh, they conquered Rabbah. And after they conquered Rabbah, they conquered the giants in 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 Philistine, um, those who were descendants or in relation to Uh, to Goliath, who, remember, that was David's giant. And there's a word there as well. But where I want to leave you with is actually in chapter 21. It says in verse 1, after all this has been done, after all these successes, after God makes a covenant with David, and again, reminding us of 2 Samuel chapter 7, when he says there will be a king that will come from his line. A king that will come from the line of David who will make all things right and bring all things to fruition. Verse 1. It says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. This is a very odd part of the text, and I want to stop here. If you know, I even kind of went, Whoa, why does this matter so much? Like, that's a strong statement to say that Satan stood up against Israel and the attack of Satan on Israel. Up to this point, they're winning. We're seeing victory after victory after victory. Up to this point, if you guys have noticed, we're seeing the children of Israel in a good light. Up to this point, we're seeing, man... God loves these children. He's called these children. They're his children. As much as the other books have pointed to just the negative side of these children, Chronicles has a tendency to point to the positive side of these children, the positive side of David, the positive side of the children of Israel. All these players who played in these roles, showing the complexity of who they are, that that they got a good side, but they they have a bad side. We've seen that. We've seen a lot of that, but they've got a good side as well. And then we get to hear and we see a defeat. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. What's the big deal? Why is a census such a big deal? Haven't we been, haven't we been running censuses up to this point? We've seen censuses in the book of Numbers. We've seen censuses in all throughout the book of Numbers. We've seen um, censuses among the Levites. We've seen censuses in other areas uh, of the text. And, and yet here, he says Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number the people. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Besheirat to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab said, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they. But my Lord, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? This is where now, we're, and I wanted to just 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 land right here because for many of us, we'd say, well God has been numbering these people why is this such a big deal? why is it such a big deal that david um that David is numbering these children here's why it's a big deal there's a difference between numbering and naming let me say that one more time. There's a difference between numbering and naming. And what we see here is a shift in David's heart and a shift in David's mind and the shift in David's mind is he's moving from these children being the children of God to being commodities of the kingdom. I stop here for a moment because we see that God sees this as a great injustice. So much so that the scriptures open up to say that Satan stood up against Israel and it was a, it was a satanic agenda that caused David to go from naming people to numbering people. It was seen as a great injustice to just count them as if they are commodities of the kingdom. Ah, what a conviction it is that often nations run censuses, not for the sake of knowing people, but for the sake of commoditizing them, for the sake of earning income, for the sake of uh, taxes, and it becomes more about money and about power than it is about the kingdom of God. And the unfortunate, the unfortunate reality family is that our churches often become what a lot of our countries have become. In a lot of these nations and these governments, the same church that wasn't meant to compromise the law of God To see every man being made in the image of God according to his likeness. To see equality in all people rather than running censuses that would organize people, move them in certain places, classify people in order to maintain power and influence. This was the great sin that God is saying that Satan came up against Israel. And the unfortunate thing is that our governments have done it and our churches have as well. Pastors measure ministerial success based off of how many people show up to church. How many people come to church on Sunday? Because we see them more as commodities that earn us offerings and tithes. Not as people who have been called by the name of God so we measure the successes of our ministries not by how many people we've built up but how many people we've brought in oh goodness this is going to get dangerous and this might get me in trouble and i'm I'm sorry if this gets me in trouble but i have found my brothers and sisters that our church has become very much like the nation of israel in first chronicles 21 where our churches don't measure people by their names. They measure them by number, where we number people, but we don't get to actually know them. We wanna fill up our rooms, build up our platforms, fill up our stages, fill up our buildings, create big houses and big stadiums. And yet we're cool with people coming in. But the question is, what do we measure our success by? Do we measure by how many people show up or do we measure by how many people we've built up? Because I find that more churches care about the number of people who show up than the number of people who are built up. That now we have an institutional Christianity that's satanically influenced, that wants to simply see people show up. As long as you give me my tithes and my offerings, as long as you show up to the building, as long as you're contributing to the kingdom, as long as you're giving your resource and your time and your effort, you know, it's that kind of small minded, small kingdom thinking, not kingdom thinking, but small kingdom thinking, like my church brand kingdom thinking, like my church name kingdom thinking, like my platform kingdom thinking. It's that type of small kingdom thinking that has commoditized our members where now we turn our members simply into the volunteers of our church. We call them servant leaders who contribute to our mission and our vision. I'm sorry, pastor, but we got to speak into this, that we don't see how much we've diminished people to make people believe that the only way they can be used by God is to simply show up to your church and to serve your church. Serving your church Is not being used by God. Serving your church is serving your church, and maybe God has called certain people to come alongside you to help you in the vision and to help you to help you know build up the, the 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 message of Jesus Christ and to propagate it and to and to yes, I get all of that. But the question that I have to ask you is: How do you see the members in your church? How do you see the people in your church? Are they just numbers and commodities? Or are they people that God has sent for you to build up, to love and to care for? Satan moved David to number Israel. And it was a great sin because now people weren't known by their names. They were just known by the number. Give me five minutes because I have one last thing to say and then I'm done. That's what happens when you're in a hotel vibing. I'm glad I'm chilling and vibing with you all. But here's what I love about all this is that even in the midst of defeat, God tells David, you have a choice. He says, you've got three choices of how you want to be punished. (laughs) And there's so much there to break down. He says three things to choose. He says three years of famine, or three months of defeat from your foe, or else for three days by the sword of the Lord, the plagues in the land. <laughs> so he says, see the famine, being defeated by your foes, with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else three days. Sorry, three days of plague in the land. David says something that's profound. He says, I'm in great distress. He's seen the evil that he's committed. He's seen what he has done. He's seen how he has failed his people in being the king that he's called to be. And even though he sees his failure, look what he says. He says, if I'm going to choose a punishment, he says, I know your mercy is great. Just don't let me fall into the hand of man. And this really speaks into the heart of how we ought to be when we come before God and we have sinned. I find that more people care more about what people think than what God thinks. I find that more people are afraid of being judged by man than being judged by God. More people are concerned with what God your brother or sister or what your pastor or what your prophet is going to say rather than what God says. And this is what it means to be a man after God's own heart is what David cares more about is what God thinks. I'd rather be punished by God than to be punished by man. Because if God punishes me, I know God has mercy towards me. If I'm punished by God, it's out of love. If I'm punished by man, it's out of power, it's out of hate, and it comes from Satan. And yet we are more concerned with what a man will do to us, what mankind will do to us, than what God will do. When David tells you where the priority of his justice comes in, the priority of his justice can be found in God. He says, if I'm going to be punished, I'd rather be punished by God than to be punished by man. Let me ask you something, church. Are we a respecter of persons? Like, Do we live lives looking to simply be appreciated, accepted, and not criticized by man? Or do we live lives where we have to address our issues directly with God? Are we more concerned by man and mankind's justice or about God's justice in God's heart? Do we simply seek what God wants? God, what do you want from me? Like God, who cares if I got caught? You know, some people right now, their whole thing is, I just don't want to get caught. Who cares if I get caught? Who cares if people find out? That's not the question. Is if God sees me, is this who God wants me to be? David pleads before the Lord and we were reading this, but but David pleads before the Lord and, and David says, God, for the sake of the people, just punish me in my house. Just punish me in my house. David knows I'm dealing with you, God. This is you and me now. Let's work this out. Let's work this out. You can do what you want with me because it's you and me now. Fam, we need to stop living our Christian lives. For those of us who are Christians here, some of us who aren't Christians here, and you're here because you, you really want to see a whole new perspective of Scripture. And I hope as you've been reading through the reading rants that you've been seeing, okay, maybe the Bible isn't what I thought it was. And, and maybe this is, you know, helping reorient you to kind of un- just, just deconstruct all the stuff that you've been told and maybe to actually have an opportunity to see it all over again. So if you're not a Christian, listen, I'm glad you're here, but I want to talk to the Christians for a moment. I want to talk to the Christians for a moment. Christian brother and Christian sister, can I ask you a question? What do you live for? What do you live for? And what I'm asking is not lip service. I'm not asking for lip service. What do you, what do you live for? If you give me your words, a lot of us will say, I live for Jesus. I live for God. I live for, some may say, I live for my family. Some will say, I live for other stuff. Hey, hey, you're being honest. I'm talking about Christians. Because for many of you, and I'll include myself, for many of us, we've given words. And we've said, God, I want to live for you and you alone. But we say it with our mouths, but our lives don't reflect it. Many of us live for people. If we can, if we can just be honest, we are prioritized being judged by man over being judged by God. When we sin, we're worried about getting caught by man. We're not actually concerned about the fact that God already knows it. We say it with our words, but our actions don't prove that because we, put what people say over anything else. So my question for you is, what do you live for? What are you actually afraid of? Because for many people, we're afraid of God's judgment, but we forgot that he's full of grace and mercy, that we can come boldly before his throne of grace. No, we hide from God, and then we hide from man. And God is saying, come before me. God sees David's sin and God encounters David there. That even though there's consequences, but David knows I'd rather be in the justice of my heavenly father than be under the justice of all these other people who are around me. There's some people right now, you live, you say you live for God, but actually you live for your pastor. As long as pastor doesn't catch where I'm, catch me, I'm good. Some of you say you live for God, but the reality is you live for your husband. As long as my husband doesn't catch what I'm doing, I'm okay. So we do a lot of things in private worrying about what mankind will say and what mankind will do. But God sees everything and he knows everything. And yet here's the beautiful thing about it is he knows what you've done and he still loves you he loves you deeply. He loves you deeply. He knows your sinful thoughts. He knows your sinful ideas. He knows what you did yesterday. He knows all of it. And you're so busy hiding from the judgment of mankind that you have not come before God in the justice of God. And he comes before God. God's like, pick one. And David comes before him and Rinse is clothes because it's now it's me and you, God. And I feel the Holy Spirit leading me here to tell you that it's time for you just to go back and talk to God again. Go back and talk to him again. Forget what everybody thinks about you. Go back and talk to him again. Because your heavenly Father is full of grace and he's full of mercy. And he already knew what you were gonna do, and he already forgave you before you did it. But the question is, how do you choose to live from this moment? Are you going to choose to live for your, uh, as a respect of persons? Or are you going to say, hey, God, I'm going to give you all of it. Here I am, all of me, all of me and my sex addiction, all of me and my drug addiction, all of me and, and all the just toxic things about me. I'm going to give you all of me. All of just my brokenness and all the stuff that i done i 'm going to give you all of me and I know it 's hurt people I know and I know there's some stuff because there 's some stuff we a lot of us here have that we would never ever ever want to be brought out to light because it 's shameful because it 's ugly, and yet we 've lived lives where we 're more concerned about how people will judge us and not how God already sees us. God saw David. He knew David. And God addressed David right there. And God told David, David, which one do you want? And I know God's speaking to some people here. What do you want? Do do you want, how do you want to do this, David? Do Do you want me to deal with you as your heavenly father? Or do you want me to hand you over to man? We know what man does when they see one who sins. So which one do you want to do it? How do you want to do this? And David says, give me your judgment every time. Why? Because you are full of mercy. Verse 13 And and David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So today, let's fall into the hand of God. Like, let's come before him. It doesn't matter. It can be intentional sin. It can be accidental sin. It can be any sin. I think we're so worried about what sin it is, not realizing It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Let's come before him. Pick God. Pick his judgment. Pick his justice every time. You want to know why? Because his justice won't destroy you. His justice will always build you up and restore you. Father, I ask that you would just lead us and guide us today. Lord, speak to us today. Lord, through all of this, Lord, for us to know that we are loved by you, loved by you, unconditionally loved by you, that we have been given the privilege, even in the midst of our sin, to fall into your hand. So let us fall into your hand. Lord, restore us, renew us, correct us, do what you need to do with us to make us into what you desire us to be. But let us not ever forget that your mercies are great and that your love endures forever. And we say that in Jesus' name. Amen.